welcome to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Priscilla Nelson and Ed Cohen, co-authors of Riding the Tiger. On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Priscilla Nelson and Ed Cohen, co-authors of Riding the Tiger. The Strategy Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this special edition podcast, Priscilla Nelson and Ed Cohen share with us their insights and personal experiences leading what was a thriving global organization through an Enron-like catastrophic event. So now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Chris Nelson and Ed Cohen, co-authors of Riding the Tiger, Leading Through Learning in Turbulent Times. Chris is a senior level executive with 30 years of global best-in-class talent management experience, working with Fortune 500 companies in human resources, strategic development, performance consulting, global diversity, and succession planning. Ed is a talent executive who has conducted business in more than 40 countries with organizations including Booz Allen Hamilton, Sear Technologies, National Australia Bank, Farmers Insurance Group, Banco Benesto, and the World Economic Forum. He has been a feature speaker around the world, from Beijing to Chicago, Sydney to Amsterdam, and now to over 50 countries simultaneously via the Strategy Driven Podcast. Chris and Ed, welcome to the Strategy Driven Podcast. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. I am thrilled to have you both on the show tonight. As we talked about in our pre-show preparations, it is a rare treat to get to talk to somebody who has experienced and, and gone through a crisis like you all have gone through and to be able to gain those very personal, very real, involved insights to be able to share with our listeners. So I'm really thrilled to have you on the show. Now, just to start out with, the Satyam Computer Services scandal was dubbed by a number of analysts as being India's version of our U.S. Enron scandal. Prisonette, to start our conversation, would you share with our audience a brief history of the events that surrounded this particular scandal at Satyam and the impact those events had on the company itself. 
Sure. The, um, well, the company was a very, very fast-growing company. And from 1992 to 2009, the company actually grew from 100 people to 53,000 people. And from 2005, when we joined the company, to 2009, they grew from 20,000 people to 53,000 people. And the organization was continuously expanding and growing at a very rapid pace, not unlike other businesses across India, like such as Wipro, Infosys, Tata. All of them have have historically grown 30 to 40% a year, although not so much right now with the recession. Now they're growing Mm -hmm. about 18% a year, which is still quite enviable. Oh, yes. So um, basically what happened was we went through this growth. We achieved a lot of accolades around the world. And then we were stunned to find out on July 7, 2009, um, that our CEO had written a letter to the stock exchanges, both in Bombay and New York, um, identifying the fact that he had been cooking the books since 2001. Um, so this ended up to be approximately, he was overstating the books by approximately 20%. It was a huge scandal that came out across India. We were referred to, as you said, the, the, the Enron of India. Um, and what, what happened is that the company got spun from being a hero to zero overnight. Actually, not even overnight, instantly. Wow, that, that is phenomenal. And, and both of you were working there at Satyam, if, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah, wow. we were both senior leaders there. Had, well, uh, quite an impact on um, our lives and certainly the lives of 53,000 associates, their families and friends and vendors and customers, certainly. And, of course, you needed to take action right away just to keep the business running. And in Riding the Tiger, you described a what you termed lights-on strategy that was used to ensure that Satyam remained a viable and operational company, that it was able to continue to serve its various customers around the world. Could you describe what the components of that lights-on strategy are? Well, sure. Um, I think that the first thing that we looked at was the need to hit the pause button. Mm-hmm. We wanted to make sure that we weren't reacting out of sheer panic or the need to just do something. And so we hit the pause button for a bit and started to reevaluate. We looked at um, what information we had, um, what information we didn't know, uh, you know, really carefully evaluated, you know, providing um, up-to-minute details with the people on our team, getting as much information as we could about the impact that this is all going to have on the company and what actions had to be taken. And then we knew that we also had to get back to the customers as well as our inside employees and let them know what we were going to do, our plan of action. So we started with hold everything, and we met with everybody on our team, and we met with some of the leaders, and we actually designed the path forward. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we did was um, a start-stop-continue worksheet. And we looked at what we have to start doing to basically keep our lights on and our doors open. So that's why we called it the lights on strategy, what will keep us open. And so we looked at what we have to start doing, 
we had looked at what we had to stop doing and we looked at what we had to continue doing. And basically that means that anything that did not support the lights on and the doors open was eradicated. So if it wasn't something that served us, if it was something completely unnecessary or didn't serve the purpose of just that, keeping the lights on and the doors open, then we stopped doing it. So a lot of our classroom programs did not fall into that category, so those were suspended temporarily. Um, we actually did continue programs that would result in a certificate or some kind of a degree because the, the litmus test we put to that was if someone were in a program and they were working towards their degree and then suddenly had no ability to finish it, how would they feel? So we okay. felt that it was only fair to keep those programs in place. And it was such a simple and profound task that we actually spread our facilitators out across the company and within the first two days, there's all over the company doing it for their own businesses as well. So looking at what they needed to start, stop, and continue in order to keep the lights on and the doors open. That's an extremely important thing, I think, for our audience to understand. I mean, I, I grew up in the U.S. nuclear industry, and of course we had our Three Mile Island accident. And following the accident, there was a rush to new regulation, and then there was a rush for companies to try to implement these rapidly changing regulations. And it cost the utilities billions of dollars and a lot of heartache to try to keep up with these changes because no one wanted simply to stop, to pause, as, as you, you put it, and to understand what was going on to them and to formulate a very deliberate, actionable plan to move forward, considering and balancing all of the various needs. They rushed to action and actually caused more harm than good in that very near-term period. And it's an exactly. easy thing to do. Yeah. We yeah. had to look at the fact that 53,000 associates were spread through 60 countries as well. Mm -hmm. So we had to critically evaluate, are we going to deliver some of these programs through classroom training? Are they going to be virtual? How will people be deployed? Um, will we have to write new content? Because certainly there's a lot other things coming into this situation now, and the scenario has changed. It's not simply about learning how to construct a PowerPoint slide or how to um, do a branding program. Now you've got the additional stress of how do people cope with their day-to-day -day operations? How do leaders lead differently when they're not certain whether their team is going to be intact? How do they evaluate how that team is coping with everything? So there are a lot of other variables coming into play here, which most organizations don't take into account across the board. Right. That was right. actually the core of our strategy because we needed to – reach 53,000 people, but we were not able to reach 53,000 people. So what we decided to do was leverage the leadership of the organization, reach out to them, get them unstuck, help them mm -hmm. to recenter themselves, help them to open the lines of communication, and then have them act as a conduit to the 53,000 employees. So it, our, our primary concentration became the leadership and helping the leaders to understand how best to lead through this turmoil. I'd like to probe on this line of discussion just a little bit sure. further. And that is, it, in your book, you talked about 
two central pillars to the lights on strategy. And I think we're starting to touch on those here, and, and that is that they were based on communications and learning. Could you talk to us a little bit about the role that each of those pillars has in the lights on strategy? Sure. The the learning role basically was, as I had just alluded to, concentrating on the leaders. However, there were some things that we needed to continue doing um, in the learning role, and that was making sure that our, our staff that needed specific technology information were getting that technology information in order to do the projects that they were doing, um, ensuring that, that we were continuing to move forward on um, you know, building their analytical skills and the other types of skills that were necessary for them to be successful on the projects that they had and recognizing that we weren't going to close our doors, so we needed them to um, continue to build on their skills. Um, however, we needed to do that in the throes of a major crisis, and that's why most of our learning was concentrated on the leaders. And so for our leadership and for our learning strategy for them, we introduced things like um, a program called Rise of the Phoenix, and that basically looked at Harvard case studies for companies that had so, um, gone through a significant crisis and was able to survive it. And so we looked at Continental from worst to first. We looked at the Cadbury scandal where they found worms in the um, chocolate bars. Um, we looked at the Tyco financial scandal, which was similar. Um, and we steered away from organizations like Enron that did not survive and only looked at those that did survive, and we looked at the things that they did and what they had in common with each other to survive. And this was done as a web television show three times a week so that the leaders could tune in and actually get these tips regularly. Um, from a communication perspective, we actually, um, again, used our web television capability to start running an emergency broadcast system. So bringing news to people throughout the day that would allow them to be able to tune in at any time and find out what was happening with the organization. And so it was um, you know, a lot more than just disseminating information. We were also bringing information in from all sources and working with our marketing teams across the organization to be able to help people understand the difference between the fact and the fiction that was going out because the media was very quick. Mm -hmm. They were reporting things very, very fast, and as they reported uh, information, some of it was right, some of it was, was a little bit skewed, and some of it was a lot skewed. And so we had a whole segment called Factor Fiction that we would go through the information that was going out to the public and identify what was fact, what was fiction. And I know how critically important that is, again, from a setting of a, a nuclear plant and its operations. Uh, communications out to the public is is crucial. And right. as as a customer, and one of the things Nathan that we did was we recognized, and it seems like such an obvious thing, and yet organizations even today, many many organizations forget that the people inside the organization may need some different kind of care, because mm -hmm. what we do when we're the employee of a company who's going through this kind of shame, we take on that shame. Yes. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. We we often identify ourselves, our our worth, 
uh, to our families, to society, all through our jobs. Right. And we also forget sometimes that leaders are going through those same kinds of reactions that all the everyday workers are going through. And so one of the things that we had to attend to was leaders who were literally frozen at their desks, not knowing how to communicate with their teams because they were afraid the teams were going to say, am I going to lose my job? And they didn't want to tell them yes. And yet at the same time, research shows that people want some control over their destiny. So most people would rather know if they're going to lose their job so that they can put some pieces in place. They can plan ahead. They can do something about it. They can at least get their resume ready or prepare themselves to search for something. But not knowing is much worse for most people. And so we had to educate them about here's how to be with your team. Here's how to look for people who may be um, unable to deal with this kind of stress and need some additional help. Um, here's what to say. You need to be in communication. You need to push yourself away from that desk and go out and be in community with these people. Effective leadership is always so critical in dealing with a crisis. And in, in your book... And they're scared, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think the one of the greatest compliments I have ever received in my professional career was in dealing with uh, a smaller crisis. But, but to us, it was important. We, we had a fire on the submarine I was serving on. And, of course, we were uh, under the water, as submarines tend, tend to be, so there's no place to go. And one of the folks afterwards told me, he says, you know, he says, I heard this calm voice through the smoke giving very directed and specific direction to various crew members. And he says, you just got this calming feeling that everything was going to be all right. Well, that was actually me giving the direction. And and I took that as a compliment. But again, it, it gets to your point that as a leader, you have to be calm and you have to be deliberate and you have to be with your folks and it helps them to deal with the situation. But if you're panicked and not dealing with it yourself, then things just go downhill from there. Yeah. Exactly. And, it, and then as they... leaders... Um, then as leaders, they, they, leaders also need the opportunity to decompress. Mm-hmm. And they need an avenue to turn to. And that was one of the things that Priscilla and her team did was they launched an extensive coaching program where um, every one of the senior leaders of the, co- of the company was assigned a coach. So we did not... It was no longer a voluntary basis that you got a coach. Mm-hmm. Every leader received a coach, and and the coaches were internally trained coaches from within Priscilla's team, and they all aligned themselves to a book of clients, the, the leaders, and they were in touch with them on a regular basis multiple times throughout the week. Now, in your book, you did dedicate an entire section to talking about 12 guidelines to effective leadership when dealing with a crisis. I know we're a little time constrained, so we don't have time to talk about all 12, but of those 12, what do you see as being, let's say, the two most important of the guidelines? And then if you wouldn't mind briefly describing each one of those and and why they're important. I think that the the one that, that really became the most critical and, um, for us was to cost optimize with retention in mind. 
Um, it was actually something that we recognized and that we worked with the leaders on. Mm-hmm. However, not enough leaders across the organization recognized this, and the organization ended up hemorrhaging people. And so at one point, there was upwards of 100 people a day leaving the company. Wow. And, um, and that was because when they went through the severe cost-cutting measures, they didn't first consider who is it that we want to keep and how are we going to keep them. That actually became an afterthought as people were going out the door. So um, in, these t- in these days um, where there's still companies are still cutting back on their, their costs and still looking at where can they cut corners, the one thing that they need to be considering is um, retention. And we're starting to see the fallout of that around the world because um, a lot of our clients were starting to see their, their turnover is starting to jump up. So sure. where their turnover might have been 3 to 5% last year, all of a sudden they're talking numbers like 18%, 20%, 22% turnover. And um, a recent study by Deloitte actually indicates that as many as 34% of all leaders are starting to look for new positions and will change positions in the next 12 months. Wow. That is a staggering so, number. Yeah, it's a staggering number, and, and that is because of not heeding this one piece of advice. To co- when you cost-optimize, any time an organization cost-optimizes, they need to do it with retention in mind. Sure. sure. And that really is uh, its paramount, and it's, it's a huge, huge piece of, our, of the book that we, we wrote. I have two others, and I'll split them into um, some smaller time. One is we'll never get back to normal. Because the normal that we were experiencing, of course, is not a normal we would want to go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in all of these situations, the normal is completely redefined. And people want to get back to something that's familiar to them, so they call that normal, and yet it really isn't. We have to create a new normal in order to fit into that, and hopefully with better values and uh, different core core values with this. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is um, talk even when you don't believe there's much to say. One of the things that we found out is that over-communication is absolutely essential during these kinds of times. And you have to repeatedly get the message out. Sometimes you have to say the message over and over and over again until you hear it actually coming back to you in the same way that you sent it out. Because sure. it will get modified and changed and and people hear it the way they want to, and people add things to it. So it's really important to consistently and continuously get that message out. And also because when people don't hear, they get frightened and they make stuff up. Mm-hmm. And that's when the rumors start. Right. I always say that in the absence of knowing, people will develop something to fill the void. Yep. So if we don't communicate, even during good times, the business's strategy they will come up and concoct a way or what they believe the executives are thinking that this is the direction of the company and so therefore this is what I ought to do based on the little bits that they, they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, all well-intentioned, but it's just something that's our in our nature. Yes. Yeah. Well, another thought came to mind as I, I think of crises, and that is a crisis never occurs at an optimal time. If we could choose when the the crisis were to occur, we'd be so much better off. What should executives do to ensure that the leadership team of the organization, that I would include both executives and the management team, 
are prepared to deal with the unexpected crises? Well, I think one of the things we have to realize is that turbulence um, has a different definition these days. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we look at the average organization, there's always going to be acquisitions and mergers and leaders leaving and, you know, economic situations and what happens in one part of the world affects what's going on in your part of the world. And so turbulence really is relative. It's, it's pretty much here. We have to learn how to embrace it on some level. Sure. And so with that in mind, our responses perhaps are different and our planning is perhaps different. One of the things that Ed and I feel very strongly about is that uh, learning and development functions need to be part of a risk mitigation plan. Mm -hmm. And they're not. They're, they're just not. Most companies, that's the first thing that's cut because it doesn't generally revenue, uh, generate revenue. Mm-hmm. And so we feel very strongly that they need to be part of that risk mitigation plan. And, you know, even before this, we might have said, okay, well, we can go down to bare bones. When this scenario happened, we lost all of our budget. So we lost a lot of people, and we lost flip charts and markers and classrooms and the ability to travel to train people. So we went to virtual mode instantaneously. Some of the things that we had put in place ahead of time actually helped us get through that. Um, and Ed, I would love for if you could talk about Planet Satyam because that really is a key piece in our being able to deliver these programs throughout the world. Well, you know, I think that um, what Chris is saying is, is a key lesson and actually changed our approach to leadership development significantly okay. and, um, and, and really helped us to realize that leaders need development constantly. So it's not really about continuous learning. It's about constant learning. And um, leaders are faced with things that they have never done before, and they're expected to make decisions and, and do the right thing for the organization. However, they don't always have the right tools and the right skills to do that. Um, so one of the things that we did was we, we had a program called Planet Satyam, which was our web television program, and we were running eight hours of live programming a day. And then we would repeat that in eight-hour cycles so that anyone in the world would be able to get that. And we ran programs like um, Weathering the Storm, Rise of the Phoenix that I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. and other key programs that were really geared towards what the leaders could do. And for the technical people, we, we ran a program called Let's Talk Project Management. We, we ran the Business Analyst Series those types of things, and really started breaking learning down into 45-minute increments. And one of the things that we saw was that we were reaching a lot more people a lot more often, and people were really implementing their takeaways. So I think that a key thing is to, to recognize that we can't scenario plan for everything. I think mm-hmm. scenario plans are great. I think fire drills are great. Um, but you can't scenario plan for everything. I don't think there's any company in the world that is going to sit down and say, okay, let's do a scenario. What if our chairman confesses to embezzlement? Right. right. I, I seriously doubt that any company would do that. Although it's more timely now. <laughs> yes. It would probably yes. be a good scenario to do. However, I doubt any organization would be willing to do it. And so based on that, I think that it's, it's more a matter of um, having them be change ready, having them understand how to speed things up 
without creating crisis and, and how to have um, change without crisis. And even in the face of a crisis, the leader can be the calm within the storm. Oh, I agree. And, and I agree that we're not going to uh, see anytime soon any companies having the, yeah, the chairman did the embezzlement scenario. Mm-hmm. But back to the, the principles, the 12 leadership guidelines, I think what I see people do, to your point, is they train on principle, they train on guidelines, and then as the situation happens, then they pull in specifics on, on dealing with the situation. But it keeps people ready for that constant change, whether it's large, as in the case that you had to deal with, or if it's just a small, minor kind of local incident. Right, and you know, there's multiple types of change too. There's multiple types of turbulence. Um, we surveyed a group of companies recently for mm-hmm. a um, conference that we were speaking at, and you know, one of the companies said that they had gone through the largest merger in banking history, and that doubled their staff. Well, that may not, you know, that they may not be a big thing for a company that has a thousand people. This was Bank of America going from 140,000 people to 280,000 people. Oh, yeah. And so they doubled their staff in less than a year. So that in and of itself is a huge, huge amount of turbulence for the organization, creates a tremendous amount of tension in the organization, and, it, and you know, in some respects, it is a crisis all by itself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and you look at when you're going through these things, no matter how big they are or how small they are, at that moment in time, they're enormous for you. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes we put things in perspective and we say, okay, well, it could have been much worse. It could have been this. However, you know, for you or for that person on your team or that person who's struggling with other things going on in their families, we had several people who, you know, were having difficulties with children who needed transplants. And um, one person got engaged to get married, and then his parents told his fiance that she couldn't marry him because he worked at Satyam. I mean, this is just the the magnitude of things that touched so many pieces in people's lives. Oh, yeah. Wow. Another thing that I I believe is true of organizations like individuals is that they revert back to their most basic or their most fundamental beliefs and values and behaviors when they come under situations of great stress. So during a time of crisis, what should organization leaders do to ensure that their organizations don't revert back to an undesired way of behaving. Right. That's where I really think that the role of coaching comes in mm-hmm. and and the the role of continuously reminding the leaders and providing continuous and constant information and learning to them. Because I think that by, by recognizing that when there's turbulence, everything is speeding up in the organization, yeah. a crisis will speed up everything. Well, at the same time, you need to speed up the amount of information and the amount of learning and the amount of coaching that the leaders are gaining access to. Okay. And you okay. help. The coaching is great because the coach is a partner to that leader. They're yes. not telling them what to do. They're helping them make the best decisions. So they're saying things like, given all the information you have, which are the top three critical steps you need to take next? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And they're able so to they're challenge. really focused. Go ahead. I was going to say, and they're able to challenge that person to stretch their thinking and, and to exactly. further their thinking. Yeah. Exactly. So what could get in the way of implementing this? Those kinds of questions. So use a lot of really targeted, powerful questions to elicit that person looking deeper than the crisis mode they're in at that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, so if this weren't going on, would your decision be different? Things right. of that nature. Okay, and and I find too that those coaches, by doing that, can even help calm the leader in a, in a great many respects and help to get them away from the desk. Exactly, because that becomes their role. Now, I did want to ask another question, uh, a leadership question, and I have found that, except in cases of what I'll call extreme camaraderie, and I see extreme camaraderie exist, for instance, in military units. And, and often referred to as unit cohesion. But individuals in a crisis become very self-aware. They start focusing on their own preservation. And, of course, that then can detract from their focus on the good of the company or the actual viability of the company. How does a leader help keep the individual team members focus on the company's survival? Well, well, first I want to say that what we observed was the camaraderie first. Okay. Everyone came together with one mission to save the organization. And part of that was because there was a culture within the organization. It was a very family-oriented culture and a very close-knit culture, and a very collaborative culture that had been built by the founders of the organization. So, you know, on the one hand, while they um, they created this scandal for the organization, it does not it does not eliminate the fact that they were outstanding leaders when they were leading appropriately, and um, they had created a, a very strong environment of collaboration. So, w- what we saw though was um, as time went by, people started to go into self-preservation mode. So fear came out and, and things like that. And, and really what leaders need to do is to, again, going back to what Chris was saying, to speak even when you don't think you have much to say. They need to continuously communicate and over-communicate and over-communicate in order to let people know what's happening uh, meet with people one-on-one. Um, you know, that became the majority of most of the leader's time was was spending time with their customers and time with their people in order to ensure that everyone knew what was happening. Okay. It's when you start keeping, it's when people start to think that there's secrets. Like, there's a, you know, we had, there was a rumor going around that we had a list of who was uh-huh. going to get laid off long before the list even existed. Right. And so it's, you know, it's when the, when the secrets start to appear or when, or like you said, due to lack of information, people make up the information, that's when it becomes very dangerous. Okay. Now, Chris and Ed, before we close, I did want to mention that you have a website, and it's www.nelsoncohen.com that provides additional articles and insights on leading through learning. 
Would you tell us a little bit about your website and the resources our listeners can find there? Sure. Um, on on um, nelsoncohen.com, we identify um, a variety of different articles. We have an ongoing blog that we do. Um, we keep people posted on the um, various case studies based on the work that we're doing with our clients. And then we have a separate blog, um, a separate website, writingthetiger.com, which is just for the book, where people can comment on things that they're, they want to comment on with regard to the book and everything. Great. I will put links on the article that accompanies this podcast to your website so that it will be easy for our listeners just to go uh, directly there. Thank you very much, Nathan. Well, thank you. And, and Prisonette, I, I do want to thank you for taking your time this evening to talk to me, but more importantly, for sharing your insights and your personal experiences on how you helped lead what was a thriving global company through an extremely difficult and adverse experience. I thoroughly enjoyed your book, in particular because of the insider's perspective that you were able to offer about Setium Computer Services and how you dealt with the crisis that was very unexpectedly brought upon the organization. I hope our listeners are going to pick up a copy of Riding the Tiger, and more importantly, I hope they'll incorporate the learnings and the principles that you share into their corporate leadership training programs to better prepare their executives and managers to respond to the minor upsets as well as the truly adverse situations that they face. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you very Appreciate much. It. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank Priscilla Nelson and Ed Cohen for being with us today and sharing their insights on leading through learning during times of adversity. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider voting for us on Podcast Alley and visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com. You can find more information about Priscilla Nelson, Ed Cohen, and Riding the Tiger at www.writingthetiger.com. Until next time. So long.